Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean, Stuart, welcome to the roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Looking forward to today's edition. We're going to tackle three topics on the show. A uh, bit of a rapid fire program for you. Up first has got to be the cabinet shuffle. Um, I purposely said we can't spend too much time on this because I actually think, and maybe we can discuss this. I just don't know how consequential it really is in our leader centric system. But here I am deflating, <laughs> deflating our discussion of cabinet discussions and shuffles. But there probably are some tea leaves here that we should be uh, mulling over. So let me come to you first, Stuart. If there's one thing to take away from this, um, you know, that maybe didn't get the intention that it didn't deserve over the last 72 <laughs> hours, what would that be? Um, I, you know, this is one of those things where I think the top line reading is actually right that, you know, we said in our four things we learned from this is that you don't do a massive cabinet shuffle if things are going really well. And I think actually the cabinet shuffle was scooped by the abacus poll that came out that morning showing the conservatives ahead by 10 points. And that's horse race stuff. Uh, I know it's unreliable in the summer, um, unreliable away from an election too, but um, that does matter. And also the prime minister's net approval rating is at minus 22 with 29% of Canadians saying they approve of him versus 51% with a negative impression. So to me, that's what I think the government's thinking about. And I think that's what the media is thinking about. The only thing I'll add, guys, um, that tries to move away from rank political punditry uh, on this is just, I, I think it, we, it can't be overstated, uh, the potential paralysis that we'll see in Ottawa for some period of time here with such a significant change across the ministries, you know, it, it, uh, particularly when you bring in seven people who've never served in the cabinet, now a newbie running the Department of Justice, which is sprawling and touches on every piece of, of policymaking and, and, and legislation across the entire government. Um, you know, it is going to uh, take a while here for uh, those ministers to uh, get up to speed on their brief, uh, to uh, you know understand where the uh, possible grenades lie within their departments. Um, I think the net effect will be, uh, to your point earlier, uh, Rudyard, that it will only further kind of concentrate uh, power and uh, influence over the government's agenda in PMO because it remains one of the few places of continuity in what is an otherwise um, pretty transformative change to who's at the top of these various departments. A hand grenade was thrown into the pond. A few fish came up dead. Mendocino, Medicino, sorry, um, Lametti. It was surprising, actually. Uh, some big cabinet ministers falling in this shuffle. 
Stuart, help me though with um, something I've been struggling with, which is to interpret, does the shuffle make an election less or more likely? The argument you know, in favor of an election is that there needed to be a refresh. Many of these, you've pointed this out, many of these new cabinet ministers are in NDP contested ridings. Um, could this all be kind of preparatory to a fall election or the other side of the coin? No, this is about hunkering down and settling in uh, and running out this agreement with the NDP uh, for as long as this prime minister possibly can. Yeah, I so on Wednesday, I actually watched the entire proceedings of the prime minister's press conference. And then they brought out the new ministers and the, you know, the old ministers in groups of three to come out and talk to the media. It went on for hours. And the one thing that you can't help but notice watching that is that many of these new people are not ready for prime time. So I think if you are the PMO watching that, and probably this was the plan from the beginning, which is that you give some of these people a bit of a runway to get into the job. Um, you, They talked about wanting good communicators in these roles, and that was not on display on Wednesday. Um, so I think that's something they will be looking for is these people to improve. And I would be very concerned going into an election with what we saw on Wednesday. You know, I take up Rudyard's uh, point, though, uh, about uh, some high-profile ministers not simply being moved to new portfolios, but taken out of the cabinet altogether. I think it is uh, worth talking about for a minute. Um, it reflects a kind of ruthlessness on the part of the prime minister and PMO, which is uncommon. I mean, think about it. Stephen Carper, for all of the talk of him being this, you know, ruthless operator, he's stuck with some pretty uh, middling performers for a long time. Um, and he certainly didn't, uh, discard anyone as significant as his minister of justice out of the cabinet altogether. Um, one thing I'd be worried a bit about if I was the prime minister is, is um, whether he starts to see some fissures within his own caucus. You know, I think loyalty to the prime minister stems from the fact, of course, that his coattails were pretty long. He is the reason um, that they went from third place to first place in the 2015 election campaign. And a lot of people in that caucus um, uh, owe their political fortunes to him. But with the polling that you saw that that this week that Stuart mentioned earlier, um, that he him, him and his team have this increasing kind of bunker mentality. And then you see, um, you know, high profile and reasonably well-liked liberals just discarded from the cabinet. You know, one starts to wonder whether you see some grumbling within the kind of liberal ranks about um, the PMO and the prime minister. And, and if that starts to take shape, guys, um, that means he starts to face pressure on both sides uh, from a, a an energized, well-financed and pretty effective opposition. And then and then increasingly within his own caucus. And, and that's oftentimes how governments um, ultimately kind of collapse onto themselves. Final question for you, Stuart, in the segment. What, if anything, does this mean for Pierre Polyev uh, and the Conservatives? Is there are there threats in this new cabinet? Is this an opportunity? Is it business as usual? Uh, if you're sitting there in OLO looking at this, do you do you formulate a response or do you just keep doing what you're doing? Because as you say, the poll numbers seem to be breaking his way, at least for now, as the prime minister's popularity, his approval ratings uh, plummet. 
Yeah. The the only thing I would be paying attention to if I were someone in OLO is the messaging from the PMO, which was that this is a cabinet shuffle that's meant to focus on the economy. And that is something they've had a free lane on for quite a while. Uh, Pure Poly has basically been able to hammer away and win a lot of uh, support on that message. And it does look like the liberals are at least trying to take that seriously and play a little bit of defense there. So I don't think that'll change how Polyev does things, but, uh, but it's Stuart, something that just, just, It's a key point because a lot of our listeners care about the economy. Who in this new shuffle kind of comes forward as a credible economic voice. I mean, there used to be a guy called Bill Morneau who had some credibility on Bay Street, who ran a large company, who I believe was chair of the C.D. Howe Institute. I mean, they used to have those credentials. I don't see anybody here that, um, I don't know, really has much of any standing in Canadian uh, business circles on Bay Street in Calgary, you name it. I mean, wh where's the credibility to talk on the economy? Yeah, I mean, the Liberals never used to be short on that. And uh, if you look through this cabinet, they definitely are. And, you know, it depends how you look at Anita Anand, who was moved to Treasury. And I think she's has a reputation in that cabinet as being sort of a competent operator, um, not necessarily on fiscal or financial issues, but just someone who can do a good job. So I think that was their only gambit was moving her over to Treasury and then leaving defense to Bill Blair. Let me just weigh in because Stuart raises important points here. There, There is a disconnect between trying to present this cabinet shuffle as a refocus on the economy on one hand, and on the other hand, keeping all of the key economic ministers in their in their portfolios that I read that to, to be um, they don't think they're they're doing anything particularly wrong. As Stuart says, as always, <laughs> there's the self-rationalization. The problem isn't that our agenda isn't good and it isn't working. It's that we're not communicating it well enough or Canadians aren't understanding it well enough. Uh, I seem to remember those types of arguments as the Harper government uh, was defeated in 2015. But I, I think the upshot is um, we're not going to see a substantive change in policy. Uh, we're not going to see a kind of, uh, as I put it in a, in a post uh, shuffle analysis, a kind of change in the government's theory of the case. It has a view about markets and the government and the economy, um, and it's going to live or die uh, uh, with that in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I think it's going to continue to remain a vulnerability in no small part. Um, you know, the hub, thanks to, you know, Sean and Stuart was a bit of a leader on this growing awareness around Canada's abysmal, in fact, contracting per capita GDP. We've got, um, you know, Bank of Canada continuing to hike here. Um, I don't know. I, to me, it looks like a backdrop that from at least to the perspective of the dismal science uh, is only going to make the life of this prime minister more dismal. We'll have to see. Anything can change. Um, exogenous factors can push and pull the country and the economy and our politics in different directions, but I just I just don't see a set of trend lines that somehow lead to a sudden resurgence of the prime minister's popularity, a return of uh, preeminence in liberal polling numbers. I think a lot working against them. Well, look, we'll continue to watch this as we do each and every day in the hub, and you can check out Stuart's uh, regular political reporting at www.thehub.com. CA. Let's take a quick break early in the program because we're going to again get to three topics on today's show. Back on the other side with a discussion of a 
a moment, a, a small kind of vignette from American politics that I think speaks, uh, at least Sean thinks, speaks to something important in terms of what's happening in terms of movement politics around conservatism in North America. Back with you for that conversation right after this short break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub, joined by Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Okay, Sean, um, you wanted to talk about this uh, issue. It it um, it maybe hasn't didn't register on my radar this week, but when you share the story with me, it is a fascinating one, and it does provide a kind of vignette into an aspect of kind of movement politics, especially in the United States, as this increasingly heated uh, leadership nomination battle um, enters its its final months, if we can imagine that, uh, between Trump and everyone else. So. Why did this story catch your eye and why do you think it's important? Yeah, um, you know, I've grown up in small C conservative ideas and politics all of my adult life. Uh, I'm I'm a geriatric millennial, so only part of that has been spent online. Um, but I do have an increasing sense, particularly in the context of the pandemic, that young conservatives are kind of being saturated in a highly online world and that that can have really uh, um, devastating consequences. The particular story we're talking about here that wouldn't have, that, that didn't probably reach the consciousness of a lot of our listeners, but I think it's important because of the, the kind of solitary lesson it, it presents uh, involves a, a young, um, but significant up and coming conservative thinker and writer named Nate Hawkman. Uh, who uh, had uh, uh, in the U.S. who had all of the kind of establishment fellowships and patronage that uh, someone who's moving into the world of being a kind of conservative thought leader typically has. He wrote for National Review. He had a, a feature piece in the New York Times before he was 25. This was someone who was being cited as, you know, the next Ross Douthat or William F. Buckley Jr. or whatever. Um, about 12 months ago or so, he joined the Ron DeSantis campaign, and this week he was fired uh, for producing and disseminating online videos in support of the campaign that involved Nazi imagery. Um, and it, it seems to me it represents a, a notable story and a warning to young conservatives that um, 
that if your only involvement in ideas uh, uh, is on in the virtual world, um, you risk kind of flying too close to the sun on some of these temptations, whether it's to own the libs or to be heterodox or to be edgy or whatever. And in this particular case, someone who uh, had a ton of mainstream credibility in one part of his life, but was dabbling in these um, dark parts of the web in another part of his life, ultimately couldn't kind of reconcile the, the, these these two parts of him. And I think it's a tragic case um, and one that, you know, I hope our young listeners are cognizant of um, because it, it can happen to, I think, a lot of people. And I think it is happening to a lot of young conservatives. Um, and that's why I wanted to draw attention to it on, on the podcast today. Yes, you know, uh, to bring you into the conversation, Stuart, one of the things I've really thought about since starting the hub is how many, you know, frankly, competing business models we run up against that I like to kind of characterize them as kind of anger factories. They are out there to kind of monetize people's emotions, their fear, their anger. Um, and they work, they're really powerful. Um, they give people what they want in terms of, you know, feeding those kind of baser desires. And I wonder what just you think as a journalist about how our media has changed. And I think Sean's right. The pandemic was, was part of this, but it especially seems, and I think this is where conservatives could be more critical, frankly, with each other. There's some really toxic stuff out there. And we are allowing this to happen. Many of us are funding these groups. Um, I could name names, but I won't. You know who I'm talking about. And it just strikes me as ultimately really counterproductive and like anything but modeling best behavior for the next, hopefully, generation of conservative thinkers that are going to come up not only in the United States, Stuart, but, but here in Canada, too. Yeah, to me, that is the best argument for the old model of the mainstream media, which is it's insulated from this stuff. Um, you know, you can, I've worked on the web desk at a couple of newspapers, and you can see how you can do headlines that that get this kind of stuff going. And, um, you know, working in uh, federal politics, you know, every now and then at the National Post, I would write something about Trudeau's socks. And, you know, like that kind of thing is more of a benign version of this, but it is kind of clickbaity. It is kind of silly. I could definitely make the argument that it does tell you something about the prime minister that's worth knowing. And there is something of a public interest there. But you also know you're activating those people who just hate them. And that's what that story is for, is to share it and to hate them. And I, the overlap of these worlds, I think, is the very interesting part of it, which is that, you know, the Nate Hawkman story you know, there is a dark part of the web um, devoted to sort of white supremacy and that stuff. But there's also a kind of shit posting part of the world that's just unserious and glib. And the overlap of those two things is what I think happened to Nate Hockman. And I don't tweet much anymore because I find that the social media, mainly Twitter, but a lot of social media pushes you into this glib world and it's either snarky or it's trying to be funny. And I don't like myself when I'm snarky and I'm not funny enough to be funny on Twitter. So <laughs> I just try to stay away. I don't have the self-control to avoid that stuff. And I think 90% of human beings don't either. Um, so I think there's a deep professionalization that happens on these places. And 
it's a big problem for the media also. Yeah, I, I agree with that, of course. But I, I would just take up Rudyard's point about what can small C conservative leaders do uh, about the, these emerging trends that really do um, start online, but increasingly spill into the public domain. The first, as you say, Rudyard, is to model um, a different and better way. And I think, you know, we try to do that at the hub. Um, I, I think the second is probably there is a role for some self-policing. Um, uh, you know, uh, Hawkman was permitted to um, live in these two worlds for, for a long time because he was so effective, you know, because a lot of mainstream conservatives liked that they had this young, dynamic, new voice. And they there there ought to have been in hindsight someone intervened much earlier before he kind of crossed the the Rubicon so to speak. Um, and the third is there has to be an onus on um, conservative politicians to resist the temptation not to uh, uh, appeal to this part of of the the, the populace. Um, you know, it's particularly predominant in the U.S. where you know it's just shocking to me that Chris Christie is the only Republican um, presidential candidate who hasn't said outright that January 6th was, um, um, you know, a complete mess and uh, a complete uh, a kind of uh, abomination of, of any understanding of what conservatism ought to be about. Um, and to extent there's some of this starting to emerge in Canada, you know, just last week, of course, there was the high profile protests of the prime minister in Belleville. And it just seems to me um, there's an onus on conservatives from um, those in the media to those in elected life um, to call this stuff out and resist the temptation to appeal to it. Uh, it's it's not only bad for society, um, it's bad for conservatism. And, and you know, mm -hmm. that it seems to me is, is one of the key messages. I hope that young listeners in particular are, are hearing from this conversation. Mm -hmm. Final question to you, Stuart, and I can't believe I'm defending mainstream media here, but it does. I you may, you said something there that resonated with me that if you were to to kind of act like you were running an anger factory when you were working at Post Media or certainly here at the Hub, that for you within your peer group would be you'd, you'd pay a price for that. There's something. There's something, there's a group to which you belong that has a code, a kind of unofficial code of standards about what it means to be a journalist. You spent a decade or more, you know, honing that attitude and skills. So why is it though that other people and organizations are popping up all over the place? And we know them. It's more than just, you know, that one big kahuna that starts with an R. Uh, I'll just say it, the rebel, um, there are lots of imitators now, the rebel that are, are sprouting up. There are other more established outlets that have repositioned themselves in rebel like ways. It doesn't seem like those, maybe they are, you, you share with me, but it doesn't seem like those people working in those organizations are paying any kind of professional cost for that or maybe they are i don't know Stuart. it just like is there a role here basically god i'm sounding so elitist today but is there a role for the media to like call out frankly the bullshit uh that a lot of 
their fellow air quote journalists are participating in and are feeding this crap. And like, if you guys don't call it out, you're going to get lumped in with it. Your own standards, your own ethics are going to get called into question. It's just bad for journalism. Yeah. The reason it happens is because it works. Like the the page views you get on stuff like that are, are obvious. And I would say that there is a clique. There is a sort of a mainstream journalist clique. And most of the people who are doing that stuff aren't in it and don't care that they're not in it. And I am kind of in it. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not like a... I'm not in good standing necessarily as a member, but I'm mostly in it. <laughs> and uh, um, and I think that does actually impact me a little bit that I don't want to do anything that will you know, be, be too embarrassing. And that's a good impulse and a bad impulse. You know, worrying about how your peers think about you can make you act in a good way in a lot of different parts of your life. Um, but and I think also to your suggestion that if the media were to come down on this, I think that would actually be good for a lot of these places that, you know, if the Toronto Star goes after, you know, any online news place that's being irresponsible, they would love it. They would run an ad, a donation campaign on it. <laughs> and I think that's the problem we have right now is that, you know, there are two sides. Part of it is the mainstream media's fault for, you know, um, getting themselves on that side where it, I think people yes. don't trust them. And I think probably what has to happen here is, over the next 10 or so years, we find some model that isn't totally fractured because that is the problem is the fracturing. People live in different worlds. Just just fundamentally to wrap this up, though, um, there's an onus on those of us who are more established to save some of these kids um, before they head down this path to the point of no return. Um, you know, JJ McCullough, a friend of, of the hub, sees a lot of these kids in his role as a professional YouTuber and he sees his job as trying to save them before they fall down this path in a way that irrevocably changes their their professional and their personal lives. And I think there's an onus on conservatives um, uh, to have that in the back of their mind when they're thinking and talking about conservative ideas and politics. Yeah, I would just say I agree with that, Sean. But also, let's be aware there are pushers out there. There are people that are manufacturing and pushing these con this content out to young conservatives because as Stuart yeah. said, it's great business. They're monetizing these people. These people are a product. They are a means to someone else's end, okay? And I think all of us should just be maybe a little more hygienic about our own media consumption and think about when we're, you know, searching out our own little anger factory because we want that dopamine hit you are enabling a business model that is in some ways counter to the interests of the movement to which you belong yeah. and i think you gotta understand there are repercussions here consequences for your actions because those actions add up there are thousands of people tens of thousands of people hundreds of thousands of people, you are legitimizing this stuff. And when younger people see their peers and other people that they respect and know appearing and writing in these places or on videos or lending their time, and this includes elected politicians, they are playing into these anger factories. And I think ultimately these anger factories are a net negative uh, for the movement.
Okay, one more topic to wrap in here. We're going to stick on media. Quick break. Back on the other side, X. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Is this the brand that uh, Twitter needs to survive and thrive in the Elon Musk era? Let's unpack it for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here with Sean Spear and Stuart Thompson. Okay, guys, uh, Sean is the heavy Twitter user in this bunch, so I got to come to him first and get his take. What the heck do you think, Sean? X. My, I am not a lot to say here, but my feeling is the X just visually kind of freaks me out because I think it's the X tab to close the windows. So I keep, <laughs> I keep clicking on it, going back to the homepage. I don't know. It's just it's just weird. I, I'm just curious what you think and what you're seeing on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore, so I don't really know what the reaction's been. Yeah. Um, Musk is such an interesting character because it's impossible to defend uh, everything he says and does. But at the same time, I have the, he's built up this amount of trust because of his successes, uh, which are, significant right like he is he is the most successful person in the world of of entrepreneurship and business of my lifetime um and there's a reason he's the richest person in the history of of humanity uh on the other hand uh, as you say this one is kind of puzzling the only window i have is this forthcoming book uh biography by walter isaacson which hopefully amal if you're listening we got to get isaacson on the podcast uh, apparently in the book, Isaacson details that he's always had these ambitions to create a company called X that would have this kind of comprehensive set of 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 activities and functions from social media to uh, content to financial services. And he's gotten rich enough that now he can kind of test out this theory of the case that he's had since a young person. And I guess we're all, all kind of his guinea pigs um, in this weird and kind of inexplicable test. Sure. What's the media reaction to this? I, I circulated uh, part of the show, an amusing column by uh, Tom Friedman, kind of basically saying this was indicative of like peak bro culture. And, uh, you know, Musk was evidencing, you know, his bias towards this kind of darker, masculine, slightly authoritarian kind of vibe of the X. He equated it, Tom Friedman, to the Z that, you know, Russian troops have been painting on their tanks. Yeah, a little New York Times hyperbole, <laughs> sure, but it there's something there. Like X is a very like powerful and to me, um it's a somewhat like let's like it's somewhat dark 
it has a dark connotation there it, it's it's vader like <laughs> it's got, there's something there that makes me think of like star wars and um you know the imperial uh, legions uh flying across elderon yeah i think that is maybe the most interesting part of all this since musk bought twitter which is that journalists have always been addicted to twitter and you know i was on there from i think 2008 or something like that and um it's always been sort of a love-hate relationship but you know nobody in journalism has left for you know 15 years and um to have twitter bought by the person that most of them hate the most and then have this weird situation where people keep threatening to leave but they can't actually leave and i haven't been on in a few months and i do actually miss the dms that i would have with other journalists and friends on there um it's just easier for us to share things and i think that is kind of the big drama here is that it's kind of been a hostile takeover um for a lot of these people who love twitter and i when we talked about you know the cage fight the mark zuckerberg elon musk cage <laughs> fight someone pointed out in the media that you know, the problem with Instagram is that it's mostly women. And what Zuckerberg needed to sort of build a bigger audience was to get men on there. And so he was very happy to do this whole cage fight drama and talk about it on Twitter. And I do wonder if maybe Musk should be pursuing the opposite strategy, which is sort of making it more appealing to people. Um, but he's just too much of a mercurial figure. I think that's sometimes beyond him. Mm -hmm. So Sean, last word on this. I mean, just to pick up on sort there, there is something very masculine, I think, about this rebranding. I mean, Twitter was this kind of puffy bird, you know, chirping away kind of, and as a brand, yeah, it was a bit annoying, but it did kind of evoke the, you know, the chatter of, of Twitter as the essence of the platform. This X to me, and maybe again, this is smart branding. I don't know. It just seems like a men's cologne. Like, you know, Axe, my, I, I, I have a 12 year old hockey playing fanatic in my house as my son, and he's got Axe going off all the time. He and his buddies in the locker room. It's like chemical warfare when you walk in there. So I don't know. It just seems, it seems very masculine to me and very like, uh, yeah, just very, very musk. <laughs> Maybe that's a scent. We should have a cologne musk. Yeah, it's it's um, as I say, I, I, I'm I'm inclined to give this guy the benefit of the doubt, even at times when it when it's hard to do so. Um, um, you know, he's he's a kind of accumulated all this wealth that's enabling him to finally do this thing that, according to Isaacson's biography, he's always wanted to do, yeah. and you know what? It's going to be fascinating in the coming years whether he was right or his growing number of critics were right uh uh in the meantime i'm gonna keep going to x uh uh notwithstanding the the weird branding yeah well they got to get rid of all the twitter blue colors now it's a bit jarring like I i'm i'm maybe down with x if it's like again they got to go with like the vader palette like blacks and grays and like really kind of russian oligarch uh you know black marble and uh, chrome um yeah that's where we're going guys uh great show uh three topics i love it we packed it all in everyone enjoy uh the upcoming uh holidays as you plan for next week's uh long weekend but we will continue to be here with 
at the hub throughout August, busy publication schedule. Uh, we got it all going on at www.thehub.ca. Talk to you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.